You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. It's now time for A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. From amazing stories to colorful personalities, join us as we go in-depth with the men and women that make up the Oakland Athletics Organization. It all starts right now. Welcome to another edition of A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. I hope everybody's enjoying A's cast. I know I am. Today you're going to hear a few of my interviews that I've done over the past week or so, and also a really special interview Ray Fossey and the Hall of Famer Dennis Eckersley. These guys have been friends, teammates for a long, long time. Of course, Ray caught Dennis's no-hitter, so this is going to be a special treat from you. You'll also hear from Chad Pender, Robbie Grossman going back home to Houston, and we'll talk to our our old buddy Jeff Blum, the Cal Bear, the World Series hero, who now does television for the Houston Astros, and then Coco, our new broadcast partner. But first, we're going to play Ray and the Eck. Whenever you can get Dennis Eckersley, and you can get him for 15 minutes as Eck came to town with the Boston Red Sox, it's absolute magic. Here is the great Ray Fossey with the Hall of Famer, Dennis Eckersley. What an honor it is, as always, to be joined by a good friend, the Hall of Famer, Dennis Eckersley. And Eck, I want to go back in time and then kind of go through your career a little bit because you started out as a starting pitcher. And I remember telling you in, what, 1975, kid, you're going to win 20 games. And all of a sudden, you did, you know, but with your delivery. How, how many people talked about your delivery as being one that maybe you wouldn't be able to have the extensive career that you had? Well, first of all, 1975, if you told me that, <laughs> well, I might have won 20, but not with the Indians. Right, right. <laughs> when you go to a team that scores a lot of runs, like the Red Sox, it was great. But thinking about my delivery in Cleveland, there used to be a guy there doing radio, talk radio, wherever it was, Pete Franklin. I'll never forget it. He was a loud-talking guy, like most of them are. And he told he's this kid's not going to last. Cause, and if you did see me, the way I threw it, was, it was kind of unique. You didn't see that a lot. It wasn't submarine style, right. but, you know, it was different. Three-quarters kind of right. dropped down a little bit. Um, I always thought that, um, I, I mean, I, you know, if you, if, you, if you have the right manager and if you're, you know, if they – treat you the right way like they do nowadays I mean I did get hurt though you know pitching a lot of innings for about three years and sort of lost my fastball so did I fall apart no but uh, I was lucky to pitch as long as I did throwing like that how did you get the control that you had throughout your career whether as a starter as a closer I mean, the control to the point that Tony, when you became a closer, he said, I'd rather have you pitch three or four times a week maybe instead of just one or two as a starter because of your control. And, and we've talked before about we'd, we'd close up our books when you came in because you're going to paint and the game's yeah. going to be over. How did you get the control? You know something? I think when you lose your fastball, first of all, when you first get to the big leagues, you try to throw it as hard as you can. And then you figure it out. You don't have to do that. You know, you think you have to have a hundred percent. You don't. When you throw the ball ninety percent at where you want to, it's yeah. more. It's just as effective. And by the time I got here, I'd been in the big leagues what twelve years, yeah. and so I mean, you know, I, I, my burner was just not there. <laughs> it came back a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, but you just don't come out of your shoes. Right. That's what it comes down to. Yeah. And you know, you don't yank your head. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody was talking about if you can keep your hat on, you know what I mean? Put your hat on loosely in your head and try to try to throw a ball without your hat falling off. You know what I mean? You keep your head still. But there's a lot of things. But I was blessed with, you know, pretty good mechanics, you know. Why did you close your why did you close your eye? Because it hurt. <laughs> I don't know. Is that weird? It was like, a, a, you know, you're shooting a gun or something, right? Yeah. But it was attached to my arm. And that's the side yeah. that, that squinted, yeah. you know. It was weird. You know, the, the amazing thing, you pitched the no-hitter in 1977 Memorial Day, and I think 300,000 people say they were there. Obviously, there weren't that many. But going with the control, with the sinker, the slider, being able really two pitches, which mm-hmm. makes you an yeah. outstanding closer, as it turned out with the 390 saves. But to be able to be a starting pitcher with few pitches, how were you able to do that? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, th- looking back, I mean, I had a changeup, but it was it was right. telegraphed. Right. You know, but I had to do something. I'd throw 3-1 you know, uh, BP fastballs, right? right? Yeah. Sometimes sure. try to be a little creative, but I change speeds with my breaking ball. Mm-hmm. So that gives you more pitches and you sunk your fastball. 
But um, I wish I would have given anything to have a split finger. Seriously, because right. left-handed hitters just wore me out. Uh, I, I managed, but it could have been a lot better, you know. One of the things about catching you, I mean, even in that, that no-hitter that you pitched, the late Bobby Bonds, I'll never forget him saying, get back at least close to home plate because you keep moving out farther yeah. and farther. But because of your control, how much do you think that umpires, and, and I say this because I caught Catfish Hunter, and the umpires would say this could be a quick game because he knew that he was going to be around the plate. With your control, and how, how much did it get to the point where umpires would say, he's going to be around the plate, I'll extend the strike zone a little bit because he has such great control. How much do you see that? that? I think when you get an umpire that's ready to ring, mm-hmm. right, because he knows I'm going to be in the vicinity. I mean, it's 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 locked. Yeah. I'm going to be close. It may be a couple inches. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but if you got a catcher that sits up outside and sort of splits right. the outside right. corner and, and doesn't flinch, you know, uh, you're going to get it. Right. And I swear you got more pitches because you right. played for a great team. Yeah. When the A's came in, they said, he's coming in, and they're going to win this game, and I need that outside corner, and I got it, you know? Well, and to your point about splitting the outside part of the plate, and what umpires would say is that if you don't move your catcher's mitt, it looks like it's a strike, no matter where you set up as as a catcher and having the opportunity to catch not only you in Cleveland, but then come out to Oakland and catch those guys who could paint and do the whole thing. But with, with, I mean, you, you talk about the way pitchers are taken care of now. You pitched a lot of innings. I mean, you, th- there was no such thing as, you know, pitch counts and all those things. How did you do it? How was your arm able to hold up? Because you didn't have the opportunity to come out of a ball game after 100 pitches the way some guys do now. I, I, to look back, I wish it would have happened right. differently. Right. Really. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm glad, you know, my career was, you know, right. that for five or six years I threw the ball good. Right. You know, but it caught up with me, you know, 250, 260, three years in a row. And it did. Right. I lost my fastball. I wish when I go back some of those games, and I probably wouldn't have wanted to come out, but there's games I was finishing. We win 10 to 4. What am I doing in there? We got the W, bringing somebody. It was kind of foolish, and it did catch up with me. And, I, you know, there was a time when they were going to four-man rotation. I mean, I wasn't built for a four-man rotation. You know, all these guys, you know, Louis Tiance and all those guys in the, come on, kid, this is how the old guys do it. Get out of here. That's ridiculous. And if you did, you know, in those days, maybe you needed to pitch like Japanese guys once a week. It might have helped me. But, you know, it was grueling. But luckily I made it to bullpenning or I would have been in trouble. What was it like when you were first traded? I mean, what what went through your mind when you were traded that first time? I said, how can you trade me? (laughs) Seriously. No, but that was my family. Because it's like when you're a kid, that's That's the team you break in with. I had friendships I thought were going to be my friends the rest of my life. And it was it was sad, mm-hmm. and I didn't even want to go to Boston. And Boston was the team; they were the that, that was the team to beat them, the Yankees, whatever. Late seventies, yeah. so it was a great you know, professional move. But personally, I wanted to stay with my guys. <laughs> you know, I was emotional about sure. the whole thing. Yeah. One thing about it, and I've always said that when you came to Oakland and Tony Larusa made you a closer, he said, "I want you to close." Take us through that period of time and whenever he had the conversation with you, you became the closer coach. What I remember is you were very reluctant to do it. You didn't want to do it because you were a starting pitcher. But how did that conversation go and how did you adapt to being the, one of the best closers in the game? Well, the timing was everything. Jay Howell was here and then he got hurt and then I got the opportunity. But when I got over here, I wanted to start. Sure. And, you know, so I thought this was just going to be how long is this going to last? Then he gave me a spot start a couple of times. I got my lunch one time against Tommy John, and then the other one was against Roger Clemens. He took me out after, with two outs in the seventh, and the reliever gave it up. And I'm saying, if I can't hang out here until nine innings, why do you want to? I can't do this every once in a while. So it was told at the end of 87. Mm-hmm. And we got Bobby Welsh, right? And Jay Howell was gone, and he came to me and said, guess what? And I said, I know. Yeah. Bobby's here. There's no chance of starting. Because I might have wanted to start again. And that would have been the most foolish thing I've ever done in my entire life because it worked out great. How much do you think being a closer, being an outstanding starter, but being a closer, right now you sign that baseball, it says Hall of Fame. Oh, it's the best. It's the the best. You know, you you, you go back, you wouldn't give up anything for that, Mm -hmm. you know, really. I mean, what did you want? I mean, everybody wants a world championship. I mean, and luckily I got one of those and only one. You know, that's hard to get, too. But nobody could take away that mm-hmm. that Hall of Fame thing. It's not an easy thing to get. Right. And, and and I go back every year. You know, I will not miss one. Yeah. I mean, I'm not that cool. You know. I remember when you were inducted. Your good friend Dave Perrin was with you, and there was a function that the A's had in the arena. I think it was a 
first pitch ticket things or whatever. And I remember you said to me, tell the people I'm going in as an Oakland athletic. What did it mean to you to go to Cooperstown the way you did, but to also know that growing up in this area, playing and doing so well for the athletics that you said, I'm going in as an A? Well, it was a no-brainer. I mean, my God. And I feel really proud of the fact that I, mm-hmm. I grew up in the Bay Area. You know, my, my life now took me somewhere else. Mm-hmm. You know, everything, when you look back, was meant to be. Right. You know, that was supposed to happen. I was supposed to happen when I was in my 30s, yeah. not in my 20s. My family got a chance to be there, all those games. And I, I really am grateful mm-hmm. for that because they passed away. Sure. So the Bay Area means a lot to me. It will always will. Um, and that's why God, it's a no-brainer being an Oakland <laughs> Hall of Famer. Kidding me? When you look in the bullpen and you see a closer that's in the bullpen from any number one through the end of the game, if he gets in, fine. If not, no. I remember... There were a lot of times, probably most of the time, you'd sit in the clubhouse, you'd watch the game, and then you'd go down to the bullpen, what, seventh inning, because that was when you were going to be pitching. How hard was it to sit in the, in the clubhouse and watch a game as like a roller coaster, not knowing if you're going to get in the game or not? You're going to sit there yeah. just because the course of a game, you know, of course you guys won 100 games, so you were in a lot of those. What was that like sitting in, in the clubhouse, really not knowing whether you're going to pitch or not? Well, I tell you what, I had it down pat. <laughs> you know what I mean? I put my underwear on the second <laughs> inning, you know, the, and, and the, whatever from then on. And uh, you know, I, I you didn't want to be the guy that you know trots out to the bullpen, go all the way across the field. You could sort of sneak there in Oakland, right? <laughs> Just get out of the dugout and walk down there because you don't want to act. Here comes Studley Do-Right to go pitch, you know. Yeah. But you know, you get used to it, yeah. and you know, the, the way the game's gone with that one inning reliever, like sure. we did. Right. It's changing, is it not? It really is, and I understand it. Mm -hmm. I am so glad I got to do what I got to do because uh, we had a lot of success, and I was, you know, it was. We sort of changed the game. Tony changed the game. I was going to say that, yeah, because he did that, and and with the catcher looking over, and he gives the signs. Whether I remember he said to Terry Steinbach, "I'm going to take the pressure off of you. I'm going to call everything." Well, now they, it's everybody does it. It takes all kinds of time. But when you came into a ball game, and again, it, it was automatic to the point. How much did you think? Now I caught Raleigh. I caught Raleigh Finger. He pitched three innings, and I remember playing against him. And I would say to the guys, "You better, we better score now, because if we don't, he's coming in. He's going to pitch three innings. You pitched one. How much can you say about the guys getting to you? And I know you've always been very complimentary about the guys who are pitching the seventh and eighth to get to you." But how special was that knowing you had the guys who could help you do your job? Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't forget Rick Honeycutt. Then he got the left, that tough left-hander out. <laughs> yeah. George Rett's coming up. I ain't coming in yet. Let him get George Rett. Yeah. And that meant the world to me. Yeah. And if you go back to the guys going, you know, Goose and, and Raleigh right. going three innings, forget about it. Right. There's no way I could have done that. Yeah. You know, which leads to, for me, I would have had a tough time, you know, setting up because yeah. I didn't hold runners on. They, yeah. they ran me crazy. And, you know, you got to be careful in the ninth inning stealing a bag, even against a guy that has a big leg kick. So that helped me, too. Yeah. You know, I, I lived a blessed life, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? I snuck in there, and I didn't have to really do it the hard way. But I appreciate what they did, too. Yeah. You know, the one thing, and you alluded to the, the fact that you have a world championship, and you guys probably should have won all three, 88, 89, and 90. Unfortunately, you did not. But how special was the team in 89 to the point that, you know, those guys, and unfortunately some of the guys aren't here, like Bob Welsh and Tony Phillips and, and Dave Henderson. But having that group of guys that you kind of felt that when you came to the park every day you had a chance to win, how special was that to have that feeling? Having been in Cleveland, which we were together, and we knew we weren't going to win there, but that was different here. How special was that for you? Uh, totally, yeah. totally, because I was at the right age. Yeah. You know what I mean? Been around a long time, yeah. and I was part of that leadership, you know, and being with a new age type of system, you know, Tony and Latch and Dunk, they had their own little, they started this stuff, you know. Um, But I I was so proud. I mean, I I said it when I went to the Hall of Fame here with the Oakland A's here last year. I was proud to be an A. I mean, when we came to town, we were the A's, man. That's right. I mean, we were, and and we wore it, man. We had swag, like, I mean. Uh, that's how much. I mean, I, I, I loved it. And, and I don't know if I appreciate it enough. You know, in the moment, it's hard to be in the moment because you're always worried about the next guy to get out, right? Yeah. And then you look back saying, God, did I have fun? <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like a grind. Yeah. But looking back, I'm so proud of it. I have to ask you this because now the walk-off is not the way it was coined by you. Right. Explain 
your definition of a walk-off compared to what's happening right now? Well, to me, the walk-off is on the pitcher. I mean, <laughs> you throw it, they hit it, and you walk <laughs> off. I mean, I guess we all have to right. walk off, but ultimately it's the pitcher that, yeah. that messed up, yeah. especially the way they do it now. Yeah. It's not the starting pitcher walking yeah. off. It's the reliever. Um, but, you know, I hate to have, have, have that be associated with me because right away they go to Kurt Gibson. You know what I mean? It's like, I know, he hit the home run. I didn't make it up that day, I don't think. No. no I made it up long before that. Right, right. But that sort of, you know, gets associated with it. Right. The, the, the one thing about you that everybody can say, and you've, you've proved it right now in this interview, you're honest. How important is it for you to be honest in everything you do, everything you say? Obviously, you're honest on the field, just like with the interview you did with Kurt Gibson when he hit the big home run. You interviewed him. You talked about it. You guys are good friends. Honesty is so important in life in general. How have you been able to handle that as a baseball player and be as honest as you have been? Well, you've got to go on TV now. That's, you know how it is, right? I mean, you've got to be careful, man. You can't say everything. So I've had to adjust. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, that's who I am. I mean, that, that's the best way to be, yeah. you know, when, when you don't, you know, it doesn't affect so you. don't want to hurt anybody by being honest, right? right? That's how you get in trouble sometimes. But you ultimately want to be authentic. Mm-hmm. And that's what I am. Right. You know, I'm not, I'm not put on. And I can't be any other way, right. you know. So, but I still got to be careful. <laughs> One final thing. Now, you had all these phrases that you coined as a player. What about now in your post-career? Oh. I mean, you, you know, you, you think about it. I mean, I'm, I'm sure, and I, I don't want to put you on the spot, okay. but, but, but the bottom line, everything that happens, and I tell people all the time, the walk-off is not them celebrating at home plate. The walk-off, check that guy walking oh, yeah. off the mound. There's your walk-off. But, but, I mean, I know you don't sit around in a hotel room or at home <laughs> thinking about this stuff. It just comes out naturally. But, but how, how have you been able to do that all your career, to be able to just say, Certain things and have them be, I mean, like certain the, things. Yeah, you know, you know, Ray, you get them from all the players you played with. Right. We played with a guy, Pat Dobson. Sure. Remember, <laughs> half of this stuff is Dobbers. <laughs> yeah. and you know what I mean? I've made some new ones lately, you know, like, you know, Bridge. Everybody has a home run call. Sure. You know, I, I drop a bridge bomb. People are getting sick of it already. <laughs> I can't help it, though. It just pops sure. out. This is why I talk. Yeah. And that new thing I have is a pair of shoes, which is great. You know, uh, strikeout looking. I drop a <laughs> pair of shoes on them. And I think that's kind of cool. But stuff comes out. Yeah. You know, you try to. And once again, you want you think you're original. Yeah. But a lot of this stuff is from before. The cheese and all that. Yeah. That stuff's been around for years. Well, I've known you for a long time. And the one thing you have been always is honest. And don't ever change the way, you know, maybe our hair gets a little gray and all those other things. But bottom line is from the heart. And, and people should know and have to know that when you talk, it's not like that you're trying to be bigger than anybody else. You're being Dennis Eckersley the way you've been your entire career. Appreciate you, man. You're a good man and a good friend, and you've done a tremendous job throughout your life, and I know you have a lot more to go. And by the way, before I let you go, what's it like to be a grandfather? Oh, I don't know. It's like so new, <laughs> you know? It's, uh, I, I'm adjusting. That's why next they're six months old right now, mm-hmm. twins. Yeah. So I'm going to be around. That's, yeah. what, that's how it's changed yeah. my life. I'm going to be around, and uh, it, it brings you joy, yeah. you know? Yeah. We're getting old, and, you know, you got to <laughs> enjoy life, and that's how you do it through your grandkids. But the one thing about you, my friend, you'll always be young. We appreciate your time, as always. Fossey and Eckersley, that's just gold. I just love listening to that. Two guys have been friends for a long, long time and been through a lot together. Up next, it was a first for me. I've been doing Ace pregame shows for a long, long time. I've done a ton of them. We have never had a player on live before. It's always been taped because that's just how the schedule works with the players. But since they are on the East Coast and the way it worked out, we are on at 3.15. Chad Pender started calling us at 3.14, and we went live from the clubhouse. It was really cool. Never happened before. But here's my conversation with the ultimate Swiss Army knife, Chad Pender. I have been doing this a long time, and we're about to do something we have never done before, and that's have an A's player live on the pregame show. Yes, it is A's Total Access with Chris Townsend. Chad Pender is joining us from Baltimore. How are you this afternoon, Chad? I'm good, Chris. How are you doing? Uh, doing well. We've never done this, so it's pretty cool to have a player go live in our actual broadcast. And uh, I got to think yesterday, God, what a wild game that was yesterday. A tough one to lose. Yeah, no doubt. It was a tough loss for us. You know, we felt like we played a pretty good game there and uh, just a few things didn't go our way towards the end. 
You know, when I think about offensively, though, yourself and Josh Fagley and Robbie Grossman, you guys, you guys were swinging it, and the one you you hit yesterday, that just had to feel great because you crushed it. Yeah, that felt good. Um, felt like you know, gave us a little cushion there towards the end, and um, you know, unfortunately, we were playing a solid Astros team, and you know, they squeaked a few runs past us there, and. Uh, like you said earlier, it's kind of a tough loss for us there, but we got to turn the page, and we're here in Baltimore now and hopefully uh, put together a good series. Yeah, just one more on the Astros. Are you getting the feeling like we are as fans and people who, who cover this? Like, this is really starting to be a rivalry. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, obviously, when you get two really good teams going back and forth in the same division, um, you, you tend to have something blossom like that, and um, they're a great team, as we are, and Hopefully we continue that rivalry and, and just continue to play good baseball as an organization. You know, you were paid a great compliment by your skipper, Bob Melvin, talking about how you're a Swiss Army knife and just how special it is to have a player that can basically play anywhere on the diamond and how valuable that is today because of so many relief pitchers, you have less of a bench. What does that mean to you when, you're, when your skipper trusts you to play anywhere on the diamond? I mean, it's an honor, um, and it's obviously something that I pride myself on, and I, I enjoy that part of the game. I enjoy being uh, being able to play a bunch of positions, giving guys blows when they need to, and um, giving them an opportunity to rest, and also getting in there and being able to compete with the guys and, and contribute to some good baseball. If well, well, if you could play just one position, what would be your favorite position to play? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I really like left field. I like second base. Um, it's almost like I've gotten myself in this uh, mindset where it really doesn't matter. Uh, I just want to be out there. I, I almost kind of embrace the fact that I really want to be out there every day, but in a different position. Um, I enjoy that role. Kind of keeps you on your toes. Um, you, you, it doesn't get monotonous. You know, I get to work in different positions every day. and something I really enjoy. So I like what I'm doing right now. But, you know, it's something I like to continue and um, – obviously get to the point where I am playing every day, playing a bunch of different positions. How many gloves do you have? I have a lot of gloves. Uh, three just that I use, uh, but I have probably about eight or nine gloves. A couple <laughs> that I'm working on breaking in. Because <laughs> now you got to have a first-base glove. you got to have your middle infielder yep. glove. You probably have a different one for third. You have a different one for outfield. Uh, how much outfield have you actually played throughout, going all the way back to Virginia Tech? How much outfield have you really played? You know, at Virginia Tech, I probably only played about 10, 15 games in the outfield, um, and that was my freshman year. And then I probably I didn't play outfield again until I played right field that day against the Tigers a couple years ago, and and then just continued to work out there during batting practice. And that slowly started to kind of, you know, carve my way into the outfield every every once in a while. Yeah, because I always saw you as a middle infielder, and Bob told us in spring training that last year. Statcast, you were getting the best jumps out of all the A's outfielders on Statcast, and I was just like, "Wow!" Because I didn't think you you had played that much outfield. Yeah, I think that has to to do with uh, me playing a lot of the corner outfields. You know, it's a little easier to get reads and anticipate things when you're playing, you know, right field or left field, and it's flip flops. You know, when you're playing right field, um, you're getting better reads off of righties, especially balls to the left and vice versa. When lefties are hitting, when I'm playing left, balls to my right, it's easier to read the bat path. Uh, center field is a little different. I haven't played a lot there. Obviously, I probably only have about five games or so there. But that's the hardest one for me. Um, and it's funny because it's straight on. Um, you just have a lot of ground to cover. But I think that definitely has to do with um, the way you read bats, the bat path in the corner outfields. Yeah, no doubt center field you have the most to cover. How much have you, the nuances of outfield, about playing against the wall and all the different throws, how comfortable are you with just in general being an outfielder? I'm, I'm definitely extremely comfortable now. Um, you know, when I first went out there, it was an adjustment in right field a little bit. And then definitely last year when I had to make the adjustment to left field, that was the toughest. Um, but now that I've done it a bunch, kind of settled into it and I enjoy being out there. And you talk about this team and the expectations for these teams. Talk about, because I know down spring training, you know, everybody was talking about, hey, 197 games and we want to do it again. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, anytime you have a season like that and get a taste of the success and the win and going to the playoffs, it's something that makes you hungry and you go into spring training with, 
even higher expectations and wanting to do it again and getting back to the playoffs. And that's everyone's mindset in here. And, you know, we, we've got a tough stretch to start, you know, playing 18 games and, you know, get through that, playing some good baseball, and then you get settled in and get some rest with some off days. And then our goal is to, you know, just keep playing good baseball. And, and hopefully by the time we look up, by the end of the season, we put ourselves in a really good position to do that. Yeah, we know nobody wants to make excuses, but obviously uh, just the way that spring training was short, the trip to Japan, then you start the season. Yeah. Well, you got to play the Giants for three, and then you start the season, and you got to play 18 straight. But not only do you have to play 18 straight, you got a 10-game road trip in that, and you're in the middle of it right now. That's not easy. Yeah, it's not easy, but uh, that's what it is. You know, that's our schedule, and, and we got to go out and play good baseball regardless. You know, the trip to Japan was, was an awesome experience, but it was tough on you physically, mentally. Uh, you know, dealing with the jet lag, getting adjusted to Japan time, and then get, having to come back and get adjusted to being home. Um, but that's just the cards we were dealt, and we got to go play baseball, and um, there's nothing else to it other than that. Chad, thank you so much for the time. We truly appreciate it, and have a good four-game set against the Orioles. Of course, I appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. Chad Pender is a good guy, and he's a valuable, valuable piece for Bob Melvin and his versatility is unbelievable. And I always like asking guys who play a lot of positions, how many gloves do you bring to the yard? <laughs> you got a first baseman's glove. You got a middle infielder's glove. You probably have a different glove for third base. You have a glove for outfield. So always good catching up with Chad and always good catching up with Robbie Grossman. Robbie has uh, played well for the A's so far. He's from Houston. And, you know, this is a chance for him to go back home. And he had a lot of family and friends at the ballpark. So we got to talk to Robbie while in Houston about the experience. And, you know, I let off talking about Jed Lowry because it was like a lot of the things that I used to talk about with Jed Lowry about going back home. You know, Robbie, this was a conversation that I used to have with Jed Lowry all the time because uh, he lives in Houston, too. And whenever the uh, athletics go to Houston, it's got to be nice just to get back into your own bed and be at home. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's nice to go home and sleep in your own bed for a couple of days. But uh, be even nicer for you win the series and, and pick up a couple here. Yeah, this is this series has become very interesting because a few years ago, you know, the, the Astros were not very good, and the A's just absolutely pumped them game after game after game. And then it flipped, and the Astros got good and, of course, won the World Series, and then the A's weren't very good. But now both teams being very good, what is this like? It's starting to become a rivalry. Yeah, um, it's exciting games. Like last night, uh uh, we both had chances to to make big plays in the game, and uh, it's it's like you said, it's become a uh, a good rivalry, and I've been on both sides of it now, and and I'm um, excited to be in Oakland Day, and excited to uh, to to beat them up as good as we can. Yeah, when, when I when I think about this, the the way these two teams look at each other, you know, I, and I always wonder how people felt about the A's before they before they played here, like when you were playing against the A's, and now that you are an actual Oakland A, how did you feel about this franchise before when you were playing against them? How do you feel now? Well, just from playing against them for years, um, they've always brought energy, they've always grinded, they've always had grinders on their team, and. Uh, I really enjoyed the way, uh, watching from afar, the way that they uh, handled the business and played the game. And, and since I've been over here, it's, it's just as advertised. It's uh, we got a great group of guys over here, led by uh, led by Bob, and, and he's he's the best. And and it's I'm excited to be over here, and, and we have a really good team. You know, when I, when I think about switch hitting, your story is crazy. The fact that at, at what age did you start switch hitting? Because you're normally a right-handed hitter. Yes, and I, I started when I was like about seventeen, my junior year of high school. Decided I was gonna, I was gonna do it, and uh, <laughs> I had a coach, my summer ball coach, said, "Once you do it, there's no going back." And I haven't, I haven't been gone left on left or right on right since. So it's uh, I've stuck to my word, and uh, it's, it's a tough gig, but uh, I enjoy it. I mean, really, that's crazy. The fact that you're almost out because I know you committed to go to the University of Texas, and then you got drafted and you went into the minor leagues. But the fact that you did it that late, that's really abnormal. I mean, that, that had to be such a tough transition because usually when you're a switch hitter, you learn as a little kid, not when you're about to go to college or play pro ball. Yeah, um, it, was, it was definitely an interesting move. Um, but it actually worked out to my benefit just because uh, 
left-handed hitting was new to me. And, of course, you're going to see more righties than lefties. So most of my bats in the minor leagues were against right-handers. So it, it kind of jump-started the learning curve for me. And uh, I knew that I wanted to get in pro ball and, and get this thing started as, as soon as I could. So um, it's kind of a blessing in disguise. When did that light go on for you where you went, you know what, I can do this, I can hit left-handed? Well, I was I was weird. Like I said, when I was growing up, I threw left-handed but hit right-handed. And uh, I'd always mess around kind of hitting left-handed. And I, I, wasn't, I was actually not bad at it. So I was like, why don't I just do this full-time? And uh, I, I made the decision, and here I am. Yeah, that's a gutsy move, and uh, obviously it paid off because you're right. There's more right-handed pitchers. You're going to get more at-bats. You know, when I think about switch hitting, a lot of people don't understand. You know, it's tough enough just to hit one way, but to hit both ways, that means you have maintenance on two different swings. Talk about how much you have to work double than everybody else to maintain both swings. Yeah, uh, it's funny. Uh, guys always give switch hitters a hard time. There's only so many of us left in the game. And uh, you definitely don't want to be in a cage group with us because uh, just the amount of swings. Uh, like, say, you take a round of a four flip, four rounds of flips. Most guys will take all four on one side. Well, in my case, you only get two rounds on each side. So you're doing half the work, but doing this half half the work you need, but you're doing the same work as everyone else. So um, it's just the maintenance, um, watching video, uh, having body awareness, and uh, and, and um, just keep grinding at it, but it's, it's a challenge, and I enjoy the challenge every single day. How much different are the two swings? Because never is a switcher to have the exact same swing, left-handed and right-handed. See, I've, I've, I've been told that all through my career, even when I started, they told me, hey, you can't can't make them identical. You can't make them identical. You can't use the same bat. Try to do this, try to do that. But I, I've kind of gone against the grain and try to make them the exact same, use the same bat try to have the same feel on both sides um, just so I can repeat what's going on on both sides. Um, I think that's been huge for me is, um, is if I don't feel something left-handed one day, I can I switch over and hit a couple right-handed and be like, oh, that's what that feels like, and then go back and, and get that feeling on the other side. You know, I've never thought about that. So there's switch hitters that actually use different well, – I mean, obviously it's about the weight and the length, but there's switch hitters that use different bats? Yeah, I'm talking to, uh, I remember like Chipper Jones used a different color bat just just to make him know that he's on one side to differentiate. And yeah, I've talked to a lot of guys that use a different bat on each side. Um, and but me, I I try to keep it exact same on both. Have the same feel, have the same, just so I can go back and forth and say, oh, that's what that feels like. Oh, that was I need to take that on the other side. Or this is what this feels like. I'm gonna go the other side and feel that. Now, that's fascinating. And, you know, you're a leadoff guy. And around the ball club is the greatest leadoff hitter and one of the greatest players of all time, Ricky Henderson. How much have you talked to Ricky about the art of leading off? Um, I've got to spend a little bit of time with Ricky. Um, he's a, a tremendous human being, first of all. But um, I've, I've, I've talked to him a little bit about uh, leading off, but more so about facing What's it just just anything and pick his mind about like what was his first thought when he stole base what was the first thing going through his mind or what what did he want to feel and uh we talked a little bit in spring about that and he had some interesting points and uh and and, and you never know what especially with a, a hall of fame a great great player legendary player like ricky um you might say something that someone else has been telling you for 10 years but says it a different way and you're like oh that makes sense oh why didn't i think of that before but uh, he's been great. He's around, and uh, he's a valuable, valuable tool to have. Yeah, it's always great when you catch up with the Hall of Famer. And, you know, the one thing that, you know, was so different this spring, and I know, I know you weren't here last spring, but what was so different is after you win 97 games, it's amazing the confidence that the team has to where last year we were just talking about a bunch of young guys trying to grow to this spring and to the start of the year and in Japan and then the whole start coming back to Oakland. There's expectations. Talk about how this team has expectations to win and go back to the postseason. Well, these guys last year, they kind of they felt like they were the underdog. And, uh, and when you won 97 games, you're not an underdog anymore. And uh, you're going to get everyone's best 
best shot every night. And uh, it's exciting to be a part of something like that when you know you're going to get the best out of who you're playing and in get the best out of your teammates around you. And um, it's an exciting time to be in Oakland Day. It's, uh, I'm really looking forward to what's next. Yeah, I got to think it's one of the reasons why you joined the ball club is because you know you have a chance to go to the postseason. Exactly. That's why you, uh, you play this game at this level. There's, uh, there's nothing sweeter than postseason baseball. I got to experience it once for one game, and it's still it's, it's still fresh on my mind. It didn't go the way I wanted, but it's still fresh on my mind, and I want, I want to get to the ultimate goal is playing in October. Let's end on this. Jed Lowry was obviously a great Oakland athletic, and he's no longer with the ball club, and we wish him all the best. I know you work out with him, and you know him, and you work out at the same place. Talk about your relationship with Jed and what you learned from Jed, not only about switch hitting and playing the game, but also about the A's. Well, first of all, I played with Jed in 2015 in Houston, and I first got to know him a little bit, and uh, just how precise and how professional and He's a tremendous human being, and uh, obviously he's had great success in this game. And uh, I've tried to I t- I pick his brain all the time. I think he might get a little annoyed with me sometimes, but I always ask him while working out, hey, what do you think about this? Hey, what do you think about this? And uh, But just watching him and how he goes about his work and how he goes about the, the maintenance of switch hitting and the process it takes, um, it's, it's pretty special. And it's the epitome of what I'm, I'm trying to be. Well, enjoy the family and the friends at the ballpark and uh, enjoy the rest of this series and a long road trip, and we'll see you back in Oakland. I appreciate it. Thanks for, the, thanks for having me on. Good to catch up with Robbie, and, of course, he had that one really, really good game against the Astros in front of uh, family and friends where he hit his first home run of the season. Our next guest is a guy that I absolutely love. He's a former Cal Bear, a World Series hero with the Chicago White Sox, and really one of the nicest guys in our game. You know, talk about a guy who's a utility guy who could play everywhere. That's exactly what Jeff Blum was. And whenever we get a chance to to hang out with Blummer, we like to have him on the program. Just breaking down what's going on with the Astros, because this was at the start of the series. They came into this series with the Athletics struggling. They weren't hitting at all. Unfortunately, they figured it out with the A's, but we always like talking to one of our good friends in the game, Jeff Blum. Blummer, hope all is well. How's life treating you? It is going very good. The kids are in full school mode, and now we are getting back into the routine of interrupting my uh, my family with the season of baseball, which is usually a pretty good thing. We're used to it, having been in the game now for a good 20 years as a player and broadcaster, but uh, we're excited about this season. Yeah, and you guys do a great job with your broadcast in Houston. Every so often when there's a day game, we'll be taking your guys' broadcast. You guys uh, definitely knock it out of the park. The only problem is your Houston Astros are struggling a little bit to start the season. Uh, yeah, first of all, thank you very much for uh, listening in. We try and have a good time, and you're right. Usually the product is pretty good on the field. and makes our job extremely easy. But uh, here to start out the season, 2-5, and five, uh, going 1-3 and three in Tampa Bay, and then 1-2. and two. In uh, Arlington is not how they drew things up, but uh, the pitching looks good. It's just uh, it's easy to point out the offense because the hitting with runners in scoring position right now is absolutely terrible. And then, of course, what happened in the game with uh, home plate umpire Ron Culp? <laughs> what was going on there with AJ Hinch and your hitting coach? It got ugly. It got real ugly, and it all started with an at bat against Joey Gallo for Garrett Cole, where he literally threw a fastball right down the middle and got a call for a ball. That led to a walk that led to a base hit in the first run of the ball game, And then on the other side, the Astro hitters were going up there and having some pitches called out of the zone for strikes. And the frustration kind of mounted from the road trip. Frustration mounted from the uh, strike zone that was being called. And, yeah, some attitudes got in the way of some good baseball. And they flared up pretty good. I've never seen anything like that. Yeah, it was uh, it, it was tough to watch, and we're seeing the highlights on, on MLB Network. You could tell that uh, that was some rough sledding in that game. You talk about the offense. Why do you think the offense has gotten off to a slow start? Um, I think they might be pressing a little bit. I know that the expectation level on them being healthy is to go out and score a lot of runs, and they actually did that in the first game, putting five earned runs on Blake Snell, the 2018 American League Cy Young Award winner. So. Maybe they got a little ahead of themselves knowing that they were swinging the bats well against him, but uh, they had some pretty good pitching back them up in Tampa Bay, and they just haven't been able to get into a rhythm. They look a little uncomfortable in the batter's box right now. 
adjusting to what pitchers are doing to them. And uh, it's not going to get much easier here on out just because Major League Baseball has so many good pitchers in the, in the league. Yeah, and the one thing that I think about what we've been seeing in the league are all these extensions, and uh, I don't know what that's going to do for the CBA. I have no idea what that's going to do for free agency going forward, but I think, you know, the one thing you got Altuve signed up, you now sign up Bregman. I, that, 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 that's a good sign, wouldn't you say, for the Houston Astros, keeping this young, great talent and sign them to these extensions. No, I completely agree, and I kind of like the fact that some of these ball clubs are recognizing uh, you know, that there is talent and there is value in these guys and they're getting paid. Um, I also hope that uh, fans out there understand that, that organizations are doing a really good job of developing this talent after they draft them, and then they go ahead and give them a contract and let them go out there and stick and be loyal to an organization. That's the best part about it is that these fans have somebody to cheer for for a good five, six, seven years sometimes. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm thinking about all these extensions, and, and I heard this. I can't remember who I got it from, but some people are afraid. And, you know, Scott Brewers is coming out and saying things about free agency and maybe uh, some work stoppage with, with the next CBA. But so many players, it's like 30 players have signed extensions since the end of the World Series last year. With all these guys inking up, why would these guys even want to have labor strife? It's a really good point because the money is there. If you're good enough, and you have a good enough conversation and relationship with your organization, it looks like you're going to be able to go out there and negotiate a contract to get you at least two free agency, if not a couple of years into it. And that's good for both the ball club, and it's good for the player, too, uh, much like we're seeing with Alex Bregman. But, you know, you just don't want agents to get in the way and start stirring the pot a little bit. I think it's still got to be between the, the league and the players because ultimately that's what it comes down to. But at the same time, to the point you're saying as far as work stoppages, this – this industry is making over $9 billion, and if that stops, a lot of people are going to be unhappy. So hopefully they can find some common ground and realize they've got a good thing going and keep it going. And the one, uh, one of the extensions I was happy for, because I just think he fits so well with the ball club, and you know the fits he's given us over the years with the A's is Justin Verlander getting that two-year deal. What has it been like being around him? I think he for sure is a future Hall of Famer. How does he fit in there with the Astros? Um, he, he does a great job, and, you know, he, he was going to get paid no matter what or where he went. And the thing that is interesting to me with Justin Verlander is, is that he didn't want to take that – not that he didn't want to take the chance out there on the free agent market. I think that players here in Houston are understanding how good a situation it is here, not just with the community and the ball club, but between the guys, you know, that are on – that are putting on the uniform and playing in between the white lines. I think Justin Verlander understood that he had a good a – good, a good year, could really finish off a phenomenal Hall of Fame career, like you're saying, but do it with a bunch of guys that he actually gets along with, and they embrace him, and they're going to win. Yeah, because I think about Houston, and now everybody's, you know, Rapposado and all these high-tech cameras and everything, technology is helping guys get better that I'm sure you wish you had when you played. But that's the one thing that we've noticed, that people go to Houston and they get better. They're learning about themselves and how they play. Talk about how once guys come to Houston, it's just not about the city. It's just not about no state taxes. It's like they have the technology to help you be a better ball player. Well, and that's the understanding, too. Before, you know, analytics might have torn down my career, but uh, luckily I played before they started really getting into the numbers and exposing <laughs> uh, some of the some of the talent issues. But you're right. Here in Houston, I think they, you know, initially they developed a reputation as, oh, my gosh, they're just playing by the numbers, and they're trying to trick the game. Whereas in reality, I think guys are starting to see more often that they're actually using the numbers to enhance the actual talent of these guys and put them in a better position to succeed. And you know as well as I do, especially working on our side, the more information we have, the better we're going to be at our job. And I think that's starting to trickle down onto the field where these guys are understanding the more information they have about their swing or about their delivery or about tendencies and situations, the better they're going to be to be able to maximize their talent. You know, during the spring training down in Arizona, I talked to a lot of the guys about this, about so much technology, how much do they use, how do they utilize it, and every player's different. Some guys said, I use it throughout the season. Some guys said, I only like it in the offseason. It's interesting how each individual player will really take a look at, at how using this technology and how to better themselves. Yeah, and that's the thing, too, and that's where the coaching staffs, I believe, are going to have to kind of step in and figure out the situation, too, because you can't immediately go to every single guy and treat them the same way and just hand them a sheet of paper or a couple of still photographs and say, this is what's wrong, you got to do this. 
you know, you got to approach the man, you got to approach the the attitude with the right temperament, and you've got to be able to give them the information with the, with the hopes that they'll understand that you are trying to help them get better. But it's a fine line. But it's it, you know, the modern day ball player these days needs to understand that they're going to have numbers and analytics thrown at them. And let's talk about two players. I'm wondering about their future as you're thinking about Garrett Cole and and you're thinking about Carlos Correa. Do you see these guys signing extensions and staying in Houston? I, the conversation will be had, but it's a tough call because a Garrett Cole, you know, given his age and his success and his domination in the game the last couple of years, he may be one of those guys that actually gets on the free agent market and can really up his value or have a couple of competitors try and, you know, maximize that contract. But I think seeing what we saw with Justin Verlander with a two-year deal, who's to say that Garrett Cole wouldn't be able to negotiate something here with Houston? Because Jim Crane, the owner of the Astros, obviously isn't afraid to spend a little cash if he recognizes greatness. And here in Houston, if you've got the money and the analytics back it up, we're seeing him pay it off. I think the Astros, as far as Correa is concerned, they want to see one more bit. They want to see a big year from Carlos before they go out there and try and lock him up. But that could... You know, that could backfire a little bit in the sense that Carlos says, hey, I'm worth maybe more on the open market. But at the same time, the relationship with Carlos and the city and the organization is very good. So I'm sure a lot of people here would love to see him stick around because he's a high-value talent. Let's end on this. How do you guys view Bob Melvin and the Oakland Athletics, especially after last year? They won 97 games. They had some success against the Astros. Going into this series, how do, how do the Houston Astros view the Oakland Athletics? Um, I think they come in with a little bit of an attitude because last year, you know, we saw the athletics on paper and we said, okay, good young talent, what are they going to do? And then they splashed on the scene and put up big numbers. They can hit the baseball. They put together some unbelievable at-bats, and they're highly competitive. The defense, for me, has actually gotten a lot better with Chapman over there. Simeon's working out pretty good. Uh, the addition of Jerks and Profar, I'm sure you guys are probably, you know, waiting to see what happens over there. But I feel like they've gotten better. Laureano out in center field is running everything down. So, they're a fun team to watch, and I think what makes them so tough to play against is the unexpectedness. There's not that healthy track record of saying, this guy's going to do this or this is how we're going to pitch him, but uh, they're, they're developing that right now, and they're doing it in a big way because they play so hard. It's a lot of fun to watch, and that's what the Astros expect is them to play extremely hard and compete. Blummer, you're one of the best. We always appreciate your time, and we always love having the great Cal Bear come back home and uh, to your stomping grounds in the East Bay. Be well, and we'll see you when you come out here out west. Uh, you know, I appreciate you, too, and congrats on all your success, but it's always good being on back in the Bay Area. It still holds a big piece of my heart. Always good to catch up with Jeff Blum, and we'll be seeing him after this road trip. The Astros are going to be coming to town for two games against the A's. So it'll be Monday the 15th, day off for the first time in 18 days. Then two days, 16th, 17th, get out to the Coliseum, and the A's are taking on the Astros. And then on the 18th, another day off, which will be nice. And then, also in the Houston series, I caught up with our broadcast partner, Coco Crisp. They're going loco for Coco at Oco, if you remember that back in the day. It's always good catching up with Coco, and we're going to be doing it throughout the year. And he was actually on the way to his son's baseball game on Sunday morning. So here's our old friend, Coco Crisp. Well, now joining us here on the A's Radio Network is the newest member of our A's broadcast team, Coco Chris, one of the great outfielders in A's history. How are we doing this morning, Coco? Doing good. Actually, I'm uh, driving my son right now to a uh, tournament, a trout ball tournament up in Beaumont out here in California. Isn't it crazy how much baseball kids are playing these days? Because back in the day, we played football, we played basketball, we played. But now with all this travel ball, it's baseball year-round. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of baseball, that's for sure. I, for me, I just played Little League. So I was one game every Saturday, maybe two games, depending if you're in uh, playoff time. But, yeah, now it's pretty much every weekend. So the Athletics have a great homestand. They take two or three from the Angels. They take three or four from the Boston Red Sox. And we're all hyped up for this first series, a long road trip, but this first series against the Houston Astros and they dumped the first two games. It was a close one two nights ago, 3-2. to two. Last night, the first shutout of the year. Just how disappointing is it to start a road trip like that? Uh, it's always tough. I mean, Houston has been struggling a little bit, so uh, you figure you go in there and build off, keep your, build off your momentum, keep it going. But, uh, they, you know, they have a good team. 
So it's always going to be tough going in, uh, going and playing Houston. But it is tough to, to, to lose any game, especially lose back-to-back games. Uh, hopefully they'll be able to snap it back tonight and get back on the winning streak. Yeah, how yeah, how important is it to always not get swept? You never want to get swept in a series. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, you don't want to go into a place and get swept, but at the same time, things happen. You know, you just got to be able to go game to game and, and not worry about the past, too. We start thinking about getting swept. Now you're, you're living in the past a little bit. You just got to go out there and focus on this game, win or lose. It's just one game. You come back at it the next series, and it's the same uh, mentality that you have to have. Just focus on the game at hand. Don't worry about the games in front of you or behind you, and uh, you give it your best shot. So when I think about this game today and Mike Fires, what does the pitcher, his mentality, he's going up against his own his old team. He's thrown well in this building for years. What's the mentality of this pitcher where he knows, today i got to help get this team a victory so you don't get swept? Just go out there and just focus on what you can do. Uh, he's been pitching good. So the entire pitching staff, has been, you got 10 guys under their 3 ERA, 3 ERA or, or under. Uh, so the pitching staff has, has been a good job, doing a good job early uh, this season. So you can kind of lean on them. So just continue to whatever mentality he has already. Just stay right there. Stay in that same mentality. Don't overthink it. Just pitch your game. Throw to the catcher's mitt. What about what you can do, and he's going to be fine. He's been doing a great job already. So when you look at this offense right now, they have struggled scoring runs when they don't hit home runs. It's just they haven't been able to get multiple hits behind a first hit of an inning. What is that like as an offense where you're so you're you're so reliant on home runs when you need to be able to manufacture runs without hitting home runs? Yeah, it's kind of like that knockout punch. <laughs> you know that. They've been doing a good job. I mean, Chapman, obviously KD with the power and a few other guys chipping in there. But that's why people talk about that on-base percentage, being able to get on base, limiting the strikeouts, trying to get those walks, uh, go deep in the count. Um, I think as the year continues, uh, the hitters will be a little more, become a little bit more comfortable. At least that's how I was. Uh, still kind of just coming out of spring training for the most part and you'll be able to get those blocks, and that on-base percentage will go up. But I think uh, with, with Oakland, it's just about being a little more patient, uh, drawing a little bit more walks, limiting the strikeouts, getting those, that on-base percentage up, getting some momentum going with that, as well as collecting those base hits, doubles, and triples to just going for the, the whammy shot over the fence. I think that if, once they start building that momentum, start figuring out how to continue to get that rally going, it'll it help. How, how do you say it? It, uh, it kind of, uh, gosh, go from one guy to the next. Uh, I don't even know how to put it into words, but build that momentum, that rally. You know, people build feet off of each other. So once they start getting that all-base percentage up, I think they'll be, they'll be rolling. You know, we talked about that earlier this year with the pitching staff being able to feed off of each other as a lineup. We always mention, oh, you know, hey, everybody's vibing together. Is there really that feeling that they're, where everybody's feeling it and they're vibing off of each other and the offense is humming along, or is that just something that we make up in the media? No, no, it's true. It's just that momentum. You know, one guy gets a hit, uh, then the next guy gets a hit. Uh, and it seems like it happens like that simply because their guys get put in different defensive positioning. Um, you get a guy on first base. Now you got, you know, a fun situation depending if it's no outs, one out, uh, whether it's two outs. The guy has to get in the double play depth, open up the holes in the infield. Um, the outfielders have to move in different positions depending if there's a man on second base. So it kind of shifts the game a little bit once you get runners on base, which in turn helps the hitter behind you uh, have a better chance to get hit. And that momentum just keeps building makes it a little tougher when you get guys on base to play defense. They are now shifting more than ever before. I mean, it's crazy how much shifting. It used to really just be on left-handed hitters. Now it's on right-handed hitters. How would you approach going up? How would you approach going up against a shift? I, I, I did not like the shift. The only team that shifted me was Baltimore for some reason. I mean, I'm a little guy. I was a full hitter, so I, I get it. Um, but they had 
me, they, they on my left side, they shifted me on my left uh, when I was batting left hand. And they had the shortstop. Once I got to two strikes, play at, uh, the third baseman play at shortstop. Everybody else on uh, the right-hand side of the field. And I, I can hit the ball the other way pretty decent when I try. Um, but for some reason, every time I did win that shift, I hit it right to that third baseman that was playing shortstop. <laughs> so a, it, it was the darndest thing. Uh, but as um, as a hitter, same thing when I was talking about pitching, just staying within yourself. You just have to play your game. You can't worry about the shift. Um, if you're a full hitter, try to get your pitch and do exactly what you can do with it. Um, it, it, it teams are smarter. You know, the game's smarter. You know, they, they have all the analytics. They study your hit charts, and they know where you're going to hit the ball for the most part, where you like to hit the ball. So hitting nowadays it makes it it's tougher than you used to simply because of those shifts. But you still have to stay within your game and, and, and be the best person that you can be and not get away from that. What did it do to you mentally, like when you when you stepped into the box and all of a sudden you saw all these guys moving and you saw all these guys moving to the right side? What did that do to you mentally? I was I was happy about it. I was like, oh, okay, here we go. This is easy, you know. Uh, this is giving me this all this left side of the field to, to work with, and I've hit plenty of balls over there, and it just seems like when I try to do it, it it changes the game. You know, I hit it right to the shortstop, but. For me, it didn't. It didn't harm me mentally. I think after the fact, once I just kept hitting it to the, the shortstop that was the third baseman, I was like, man, what the heck, you know? Like, how <laughs> come I can't get it over there? Um, so I think after the fact, not being successful, kind of messed with me a little bit. Then I had to realize, hey, you know what? Forget about that. It's not working. Just stay within myself. And I had to make mental adjustment. But initially, I thought. For a little guy, for a, for a punching Judy type, you know, with a little bit of pop, you, you feel like you can maneuver your bat a little bit to be able to have the back control enough to get it over there. But uh, once you don't succeed with it and they got your number, they have your number, then it, you know, you kind of mess with you a little bit, but you got to switch gears and just stay within yourself. Let's end on this. We were talking with Robbie Grossman. Let's end on this. We were talking with Robbie Grossman yesterday about switch hitting. Mm-hmm. And he talked about how some guys will use a different size bat, whether they're hitting righty or they're hitting lefty. And I talked about trying to have a, a similar swing righty and lefty. So when you were switch hitting, did you have different bats from when you were right-handed and when you were left-handed? No, but I did have different batting stances. I mean, you are two different guys, essentially, on each side. You have two different, uh, you have different strengths and different weaknesses from both sides. Um, you might be right-eye dominant, left-eye dominant. Um, you might be a right-hander versus left-hander. So things do switch up uh, being a switch hitter, and you have to take each side as an individual and try to make it a successful individual. Um, sometimes, early in my career, I was able to have a similar batting stance on both sides. But once the big league pitchers figured out my strengths and weaknesses from my left side and my right side, as well as I did, uh, I had to change some things up to be successful on each side. So having a different bat size doesn't seem too far best. I had different uh, batting uh, styles from each side. Um, and if that works, that's uh, something that you know as an individual. Hey, my hands might be a little uh, faster on my left side, so I need to go, you know, I can handle a bigger bat. Or I might have trouble on a changeup on my left side. Let me get a bigger bat so I can slow my bat speed down. You know, I don't know exactly the thought process of, uh, process of it from his side of it, but, you know, there there are different ways to try to be successful, and, you know, maybe the bat feels a little different in his hand. But, yeah, you are two different guys from each side of the plate, and you got to figure out what works for you on each side. Well, with so much maintenance of being a switch hitter, would you recommend it to kids to switch hit? One of my one of my, my older boy, Caden, taking to the <laughs> – to his games right now. He's not a switch hitter. He's a natural righty, uh, hits righty. Uh, I wish he was because he hopefully he'd be faster than me. He's kind of on that that speed, kind of talking him up a little bit. But um, my uh, my second youngest, Colin, he's a switch hitter. He start, he's a righty. He, he, everything he does is, is right hand with the exception of swinging. He hits golf. He, he golfs uh, lefty. He hits lefty. And so I was able to get him in the 
in the batting cage and have him hit righty on his natural kind of side, and it just worked out for him. So he's eight years old, switch hitting, but it's because he started off lefty and went righty. So I would suggest it. The, the one thing for me as far as the lefty is um, my knees buckle. Uh, being a switcher, my knees buckle. It's righty on righty, you throw me a breaking ball. Even facing Wakefield, I face him righty. Uh, as I got older, he throw me the knuckleball, then he'll throw me a breaking ball, and I was like, oh, and he starts smiling at me. Um, so it depends on who you are. If you can handle the bat from both sides of the plate, if you are a little timid against the breaking ball, maybe you want to try it. That way it just eliminates that pitch and it breaks into you. Um, so, I mean, I think it's a good thing. For me, being a switcher, I only got hit five times in my career, so I, I didn't have to worry about that. I could just step into the box comfortably. Um, so it just depends on the kid, what they can and cannot do. With if they're tough enough to stand in there against the breaking balls, you know that was one of my one of my troubles. Great stuff, Coco. We appreciate it, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. And good luck at your son's game today. All right, I, I, I think he's taking it now, but I'll let him know you said good luck to him. <laughs> <laughs> All right, buddy. All take right, care. Okay, thanks. And that will do it for another edition of A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. The ball club will be back home on the 16th, so we still still on the road trip, still got these games in Baltimore and Texas. But hope to see it's going to be a two-game set against the Astros on the 16th and the 17th. Then the Toronto Blue Jays come to town for their only time of the year, the 19th, 20th, and 21st. And then the Texas Rangers on the 22nd, 23rd, and 24th. Tickets are available. And also, come see me up in the treehouse. I'll be doing A's total access from the treehouse. Come see me before every single game. That's it for A's Unfiltered. We'll talk to you soon right here on A's Cast, powered by TuneIn. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. 